0: Way too much fun. Way, we. This is supposed to be a solemn assembly. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 16, where we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 13. And who is your master? John Bunyan in his Pilgrim's Progress uh, addresses the temptations and perils of money in a kind of concentrated Section in his story, Christian faithful have just uh, gone into Vanity Fair, and the people, because they were, were unwilling to buy the goods at Vanity Fair, uh, arrested them. Faithful, his traveling companion was. Martyred, killed, and Christian escaped with the help of a man who became hopeful watching the faith of Christian and faithful as they stood for the Lord in the midst of their trial. So... Off went Christian and Hopeful and, and again, Bunyan has them being tested by money issues. They meet up with one Mr. Bayens from the town of Fair Speech and, uh, they begin to talk to Mr. Bayens who, who boasts that, you know, most of the town of Fair Speech, which is a very wealthy city, um, just happens to be his kindred, his relatives, Lord Turnabout and Lord Timesaver and Lord Fair Speech, whose family the town was named after, Mr. Smooth Tongue and Mr. Facing Both Ways and Mr. Facing Anything and the church minister, Mr. Two-Tongue. <laughs> and as they walk and as they talk, Christian begins to ask buy-ins more questions Uh just about his faith and what he believes, and he says, "Well, I I, I gained my my fortune being a waterman. I I took people uh, back and forth across the river in a boat. He says I, I like that job because it allowed me to look in one direction but row in another." And Byens explains how he and his wife never strive against the wind or tide and are most zealous when religion goes before them in silver slippers. He and his wife love to be religious as long as the sun shines and People applaud them, and Christian tries to explain to him that, that what he's describing is really not Christianity at all. It, it has nothing to do with sacrificing for the Lord and giving up for the Lord. And this, of course, offends Mr. Byens, who becomes indignant, realizing that Byens is really bad company. Uh, Christian hopeful, go on ahead and leave him behind. But not long after that, they look behind and notice that Byenz has now met up with three other friends, uh, old friends of his, Mr. Hold the World, Mr. Money Love, and Mr. Save All. They begin to talk and and uh, become uh, very friendly again. And upon reaching the plane of ease, they come to a little hill called Lucre. It is here, uh, lucre, by the way, is an old English word for money, and it is here that uh, Christian and hopeful are approached by a man named Demas who tries to get them to leave the path to come and work in a silver mine. Well, he says that many people have become rich in a very short time, and if you leave the path, you may become rich too hopeful is interest immediately attempted and and willing to leave the path but christian says no 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 i i've heard of this place some people have fallen into this pit and other people who have gone down to dig have never returned again i've heard that this place has slain many pilgrims and and distracted them from going along the way then christian remembered something and he said to demas i know you Gehazi was your great grandfather, and Judas was your father. Christian hopeful then realized that he was a bad man, a devilish fellow, and so they again departed uh, from Demas. And after going along in the plain of Ease for a while, they looked back and saw there Mr. Byens. And Mr. Money Love and Save All and Hold the World approached Demas and they did turn aside and no one ever heard from them again. Upon reaching the end of the Plain of Ease, they find an old monument which looks like a woman transformed into a pillar of salt. They see that it has some writing and after they clean it off and they look, they're able to interpret it and all it says is, remember Lot's wife. Well, in this short section and a few pages in Bunyan's book, he pretty much hits almost every single money issue and peril. He, he accumulates an incredible number of images and texts into his allegory. Buy ends, fair speech, time saver, smooth tongue, facing both ways, anything and two tongues all resent professing Christians who are really lovers of money. Mr. Hold the world represents the one who is an enemy of God for those who make themselves friends with the world are enemies of God. Mr. Money Love represents the one who is ensnared by the root of all sorts of evil, which many who by loving money have wandered away from the faith and and impaled themselves with many a pangs. Mr. Save All is the hoarding, covetous person, lucre is a reference to what Paul and Peter describe in the New American Standard as sordid gain, three different instances which the old King James translates filthy lucre, the process of gaining wealth by unjust means. Demas, of course, was a disciple of the apostle Paul, and even though he traveled with Paul and was trained by Paul, having loved this present world, he departed and went apostate. Gehazi, of course, was Elisha's servant who, after Elijah, by the power of God, healed Naaman the leopard, decided to go to Naaman and see if he could get money for the miracle that God had wrought. Of course, Gehazi was judged by God and became a leper himself. Judas the ultimate betrayer and lover of money, betrayed Jesus the Messiah and Lord of glory for 30 pieces of silver. Lot's wife longing, missing the riches and pleasures of that wicked city in which she lived, Sodom, when escaping, turned back and as a judgment of God, was turned into a pillar of salt. Each of these is drawn from the scriptures. Each of these teaches an important lesson, and Bunyan even gets our text into his story and we'll see how that is as we continue in Luke 16 we've noticed that as Jesus is approaching the end of his ministry he's teaching on money more and more which seems kind of odd I don't know about you you would think well money is kind of a worldly thing I mean he does call it unrighteous mammon and it's not an eternal and no one can take anything with them and so why spend so much time at the end of your life talking about money I mean, why not talk about the love of God? Why not talk about evangelism? Why not talk about, you know, things that, you know, we might see as more eternal, the hope of heaven? Um, Why talk about money so incessantly as Jesus, pretty much all of chapter 16 is about money and almost all of chapter 18 and a good part of 19 are all addressing money issues, well, if you were here a few weeks back, we had a great time unraveling what for many has been a troubling parable, the parable of the unjust steward. And, uh, it's a troubling parable to many because in the parable, the unjust steward is commended. And a lot of people go, well, how could Jesus do that? How could, how could He commend somebody who was unjust? It just doesn't seem right. Well, it's really not a problem because he doesn't commend the unjust steward because he was unjust. He commends him because he is shrewd. How is he shrewd? Well, if you remember, he was squandering his master, master's possessions. His master then caught him. His master said, I'm firing you. Hand in the books. So he had this short little window of opportunity and what he did is he saw that yes, he had sinned and blown it. He had saw that the consequences of his sin were were going to come upon him and he saw that if he didn't do something right away to to, uh, prepare for his future here in this life, he would be on the street begging. And so what he did is 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 quickly in that small window of opportunity while the master was waiting for him to turn in books and get all the accounts in order so he could hand them over for the next steward. He called all of his master's debtors and said, "Okay, get your bill, you know, cut it in half, cut it by 30 percent, cut it. And he reduced all of their bills, therefore winning the favor of all the master's debtors. He then knew that they would be obliged to him, appreciate him, and when he was finally kicked out of his employment, he wouldn't have to beg because he could go to one after another living with them, and they would be obliged to take care of him because he at least used the money of his master to earn friends for himself who would provide for his earthly future. Well, Jesus then goes from that parable and he says... Well, just as the sons of darkness are very shrewd in relationship to their own kind and preparing for their earthly future, just as in the parable, the unrighteous steward used that which was the master's to secure his future, so Christians need to use that which is given to them by God to gain friends for themselves who will not meet them in this life, but in eternal life to come. That is evangelize the lost. And so that was the first part of Jesus' application. And this morning we come as He continues to give the application to the parable, the unjust steward. So looking in your Bibles, if you look at Luke chapter 16 verse 10, follow along as I read down through verse 13. Jesus says, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he was unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of that uh, use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Well, from this text, I want to point out three principles of stewardship that you need to apply to your life so that you don't end your life realizing you never invested in eternity. The first is principle number one, be faithful in your use of money. Look at verse 10 where Jesus says, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. I'll so just stop there before we go into the text line by line. I want to just kind of give you a bigger picture and then we'll go back to verse 10. There are things here like when we look at it, it says a very little thing. Well, what's that? And then he says faithful, faithful also in much. What is much? Is he talking about different portions of earthly things or or is a little thing a little earthly thing and the much a big earthly thing or what is he talking about well we find out as we go down because in these verses in verses 10 through 13 jesus actually makes five different comparisons and when we look at all of them we'll see exactly what he's talking about then we'll go back to verse 10 look at the first comparison is found in verse 10 which is comparing faithful in a little thing and faithful also in much and then also in verse 10 unrighteous in a very little thing Thing and unrighteous also in much then in verse 11 a con- kind of a conclusion to the first two comparisons which itself is a comparison if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth who will entrust the true riches to you it is here that we see a little thing that bunyan refers to that little hill called lucre bunyan saw it and he put it into his story the little thing here is is whatever God has given you here in this life. Bill Gates' fortune, that little thing. In comparison to eternity, a little thing. So a little thing is talking about this uh, unrighteous wealth, which we talked about all the things that God gives us. And then we have this much thing, which also is a synonym for the true riches uh, which, of course, is those eternal rewards that we enjoy, those spiritual things, which we have not only in this life, but for all eternity. A fourth comparison is made in verse 12. If you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And a fifth and final comparison, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Okay, back to verse 10. He who is faithful in a very little thing, that is their worldly treasures, skills, time, whatever they have that is going to be given to them by God, is faithful also in much. And this was a common saying with Jesus. He used it in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 25, verse 21. And we're going to see him use it again in Luke chapter 19, verse 17 in the parable of the minas. And notice Jesus doesn't say, he who is faithful in a very little thing will be faithful in much. No. And this is critical. He says, he who is faithful in a very little thing is also Right now faithful in much. In other words, how you are faithful now in the use of your earthly treasures, possessions, skills, time. Those things God has given you that are passing away with this world. However you're using that now is how you are using eternal spiritual things. See that person who is very careful with their use of money. They Rarely eat out at fancy restaurants. They don't buy things on impulse. They're faithful to save and give. And they're constantly thinking about how they can be rich towards God and bless other people with what God has given them. Some might call them cheap. I mean, after all, they don't wear name brand things. And look at their car. It's kind of old. And it seems like it's the task of their life to see how long they can make that old car run. Their faithfulness in many little things, though, adds up over time into a rather large thing. Which can be invested for eternal purposes. They invest their things for the glory of God. To see people come to Christ. To support missions. To see the church function so that it can equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Which is evangelize the lost and bring them in the church so they can be equipped for the work of the ministry. They're not trying to accumulate as much of the world as they can. They're not trying to get as many gifts as they can. They're sacrificing what they could spend time sleeping in, praying, reading their Bible. Sometimes they give up time to serve other people, to evangelize the lost. They get out of their comfort zone because they want to tell people about Christ. Discipline and self-control characterize their whole life look at the middle of verse 10 where Jesus gives the negative corollary and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much the same thing if you are unrighteous in your use of worldly treasures you're unrighteous in your use of spiritual things you see that young person over there whose car is not very well maintained the tires are kind of flat and Smokes a little bit and there's a hole in the muffler. You walk by, it looks like a dumping ground for fast food trash. Their car, though, is their greatest earthly possession. So what does it tell you about their spiritual life? At home, they have very many CDs and video games and the best stereo equipment. They, they wear the coolest uh, sunglasses and the most chick watch. And those really expensive pre-worn out jeans. <laughs> but you know something? You know their spiritual life isn't right. It can't be. You can't mismanage God's stuff and be right with the Lord. You know, we often kid ourselves. And we try trying to compartmentalize into our life. Kind of like, okay, hey, this part over here is my spiritual part. And this part's my part. This part over here I'm giving the Lord. And this part here I'm giving to me. Do you think that way? You try to rationalize that because you're doing good. And two-thirds of three-quarters of your life, therefore you're doing good. I mean, serial killers do that. Right? I mean, you know, 90% of their life is normal. So would we call a serial killer a good person? Because after all, 90% of their life is pretty decent. I mean, except for they're stalking around in the middle of the night killing people. I mean, are you healthy? You know, if your whole body is working fine, now except your heart or liver or kidneys. No. Why? Because if one part is bad, it earns you the label of unhealthy. And so it is with the use of your money. God looks at your whole life and says, is it in submission to me or is it not? Are you walking with me or are you not? And you can't say, well, I'm walking with you. I'm going to Bible study. I'm going to choir. I'm reading my Bible, but my money's my own. You're not walking with the Lord. All those other things. Are eclipsed by the dark side of your life that you haven't given in submission to Christ. God sees your whole life. I mean, think about Saul. Old King Saul. He was supposed to destroy everything. But what did he do? He kept the king and the best animals and when confronted, he said, oh yeah, well, I, you know, saved the best animals to offer sacrifices to the Lord. That's right. That's why he did that. And of course, God says, you have sinned against the word of the Lord. Therefore, I reject you as king. Jesus tells us here that if you are faithful in the use of earthly riches, you are faithful in spiritual things. If you are unfaithful in your use of earthly things, you are unfaithful in your spiritual things. The two go together. We cannot compartmentalize our material side of our life from our spiritual. They go together. And if one's broken, the whole's broken. Principle two. If you are not faithful in the use of your money, don't expect heavenly rewards. Look at verse 11. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth. And again, unrighteous wealth is a synonym for the little thing, a synonym for everything God gives us in your life, which could be money or possessions or skills or time or whatever whatever you have that you could use for God. We know that uh, uh, the scriptures teach us several things. We know for certain that uh, all we have comes from God. That's clear. We know that God gives us all things freely to enjoy. He wants us to enjoy things. We know that God is not against us having fun or eating out or even buying a new car. Um, we know that we are to be thankful for all that God has given us. We know that we are not to love money or the things of the world. We know that we are to be wise stewards. We are to give faithfully, sacrificially, regularly, not under compulsion, but with a cheerful heart, not to be seen by men. The Bible is clear about all these things. We have these principles. So when Jesus says, therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, what is he talking about? Well, it's not doing these things. It's not living like a Christian when it comes to your finances. We're not giving God the glory he deserves if we are not letting him have control over our finances. Someone has said money is an article which may be used as a universal passport to everywhere except heaven. And as a universal provider for everything but happiness. It's pretty amazing how people just long for money, but just lust for money and just can't wait to get more money, more money, more money. And then when the, you look at the richest people in the world, what are they like? They're miserable. You want to be like that? You want to be miserable? Oh, I don't know. I'd like to try. Maybe I could be an exception. <laughs> it's like the guy who takes drugs and says, well, I won't get addicted. I'm in the exception. Another person said, money is a wonderful servant. A terrible master and an abominable God. You know, and it doesn't matter how old you are or how young are even if you're if you're young, you know, you're in grade school or junior high in high school, you may be thinking to yourself, Well, you know, this must be like one of those adult sermons. Because, you know, I don't even have a job. I don't even have a checkbook. You know, so I mean, how how could this relate to me? It relates to you. You ever spend money? Well, yeah, I spend money, but, you know, I get a little allowance. Sometimes I get money for my birthday. Sometimes I, you know, I, my parents allow me to pilfer from their wallet. Listen, God wants you to be putting him first, even if you're young, even if you're old, even if you're rich, even if you're poor. You say, well, but I, I I mean, you know, if you told it all up, it's not very much. It's okay. I mean, the the widow with the two mites, Gave more than all the others combined. Why? Because God isn't looking for volume. He's looking for faithfulness. Faithfulness to be rich towards him. And so parents teach your children that. You might be able to only give a very small thing. But it may be very large. If it's given sacrificially. If it's given unto the Lord with the right heart. Look at verse, the end of verse 11. If you are not using your possessions and money, the glory of God, Jesus says, who will entrust true riches to you or the true riches to you? Really, the text says the true uh, implied riches. The implied answer is no one. True riches are heavenly riches. True are those rewards that you receive in heaven. Now, you might be wondering to yourself, well, you know, I mean, what are they? I mean, if you... Or to, you know, let Hollywood tell you what heaven's about. It's, you know, it's one of those very foggy places where people sit around in white trying to figure out how to play a little small harp. And uh, and uh that's it. Every once in a while there's a booming voice that tells you to do something and then you do it because God's bigger than you are. I mean, that that isn't heaven, that's hell. Heaven is a place of unspeakable glory and joy. I mean, Jesus has already talked about investing in making friends who will greet you when you arrive in heaven. Now just think about that alone. Think about what it would be like to have people, people that you helped lead to Christ greet you in heaven. Think about that. Think about laying there in your deathbed in your old wrinkled body with a bunch of tubes in you and your family and children all huddled around you crying and giving your last breath and then you die and then you go off into what all of a sudden you shed your body of death you're free from sin free from pain free from the restraints of this world and all of a sudden you just wake up and there's smiling angels there and they introduce themselves and they welcome you and they say the king of glory wants to meet you now. Come with us. And there also is a great multitude of friends that you have invested in and helped win to the Lord. They are also eager to greet you. Multitudes, you say to yourself. And you ask the angel, are you sure you've got the right person? I think I've only, you know, led like Five people, the Lord, and I think two of them went apostate. <laughs> and the angel smiles and says, oh, there are multitudes. You faithfully gave to the church, didn't you? Well, yeah. You served in Iwana, didn't you? Well, yeah. You gave to missions, didn't you? Well, Yeah. You sowed the seeds of the gospel in both word and deed as you lived your life in the world, didn't you? Well, yeah, be assured, says the great angel. Our Lord used your investment and has won a multitude. And those people are waiting to greet you right now. Does that sound good to you? That sounds good to me. I want to invest there. I don't want to be in heaven going, man, I you know, wish I would have had a bigger house or a faster car. What else can you expect? What else can you expect? I mean, I want you to know is at this point, I almost totally derailed into another sermon. I kind of arrive at these little things and I think, oh, this would be so fun to talk about. Um, but I didn't do it. I erased it. But what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you a very quick, a very quick (laughs) glimpse just to, just to like, you know, wet your palate like a little bit of raspberry sherbet before the good meal. And I just want you to, to think about these things that, how you use your possessions, your time, your skills, your money in this life, you can begin to invest in these things and ask yourself, you know, does this seem like a pretty good deal? You remember in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus gives letters to each of the seven churches of Asia Minor. And when he does that, do you remember how he gives a promise to each of those churches? I'm just going to rifle through them and just, just listen and think, I can invest in that now. To the church of Ephesus, he says in Revelation 2-7, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. This is the same tree of life which the, the cherubim with flaming swords guarded so that no man could approach the tree in the Garden of Eden. Full access. Then he says to the church of Smyrna in Revelation 2.11, He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death, which is a synonym for the lake of fire. No judgment, no hell. You will escape. Jesus will have taken care of all of your sins. There will never be any fear of any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To the church of Pergamum, he says in Revelation two seventeen, to him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. Jesus says, I'm going to give you a name. And it's going to be my name for you. And you're going to know the name and I'm going to know the name. And so when I call it your name, you're only going to know it. And I'm going to know it. it's going to be like my bud name for you. We're going to be buds. I'm giving you the secret password. Your name that I gave you. To the church of Thyatira, he says in Revelation two twenty six and 28, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As vessels of the potter are broken in pieces, I also have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. Here Jesus says we are going to rule and reign with him over the nations during his thousand year kingdom. We're going to be ruling with him. Maybe even after that. I don't know what happens after that. But. Christ is saying you're going to rule with me. I'm going to give you positions of authority. You remember in the parable of the talents how Jesus says because you have been faithful in these things I'm put you in charge of many cities speaking of the you're I mean you may be the governor of cities. Think about that. And then he says I will give him the morning star. Again, this is a reference to Jesus. He is the bright morning star and Jesus says I'm going to give you myself. To the saints of the church of Sardis, he says in Revelation 3, 5, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before the angels. I mean, can you imagine that? Knowing what a sinner you are how often we rebel against the Lord, how we aren't faithful, how we don't follow through, how we don't make the Lord priority. All those things we do, we sin so many times before coming to the Lord and after coming to the Lord. It's just amazing that God would just not like, okay, you're in heaven, but you're in that dark corner and don't come out. I mean, that's how we kind of feel sometimes, but that's not what's going to happen. Jesus is going to bring you up and confess your name before the Father and all the holy angels and say, This is my brother in Christ. This is my sister in Christ. I give to them all I have for they are co-heirs and joint heirs with me in glory. That's pretty good. To the church of Philadelphia, he says in Revelation 3.12, whoever come overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him a name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. This is a whole picture of us being totally devoted to Christ and worship that God will gather in and make us like pillars in his temple, which are always there. And he puts God's name on us. We are the possession of God. And make sure that we worship Him and are with Him forever. We never have to worry about leaving His spiritual presence and leaving a state of constant worship. Finally, to the church of Laodicea, Jesus writes in Revelation 3.21, He who overcomes, I will grant to Him to sit down with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. I mean, think about that. If Jesus is sitting on the father's throne and you're sitting next to Jesus, you're on what? The father's throne with Jesus. Imagine that. Now, do you believe that to be true believer? That's the question. Do you believe the Bible is true or not? Do you believe that what this world has to offer is more real And more reliable than what I just mentioned. Are you going to believe the promises of the word of God or not? Are the pleasures of this world and food and clothing and houses and cars and mochas and things like that more important to you than investing in eternity? You say, well, where do I begin? Where do I begin? Okay, I I want to invest in eternity. Where do I start? You know, where do I open the account? This is where you open the account. Get to know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus as your savior, if you've never repented of your sins and believe that Jesus died in the cross so that any who believe in him could have the free gift of eternal life, you need to do that right now. And what are you waiting for? That is the entryway into building a large heavenly portfolio. Because it is within Jesus that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are stored. It is in Christ who owns all because the whole kingdom and everything is handed over to Christ. And then he then hands it over to those who believe in him for salvation. So if you've never trusted in Christ, if you've never believed in Christ alone for salvation, do it now. He came to earth and died so that sinners through faith in him could receive the free gift of eternal life. And if you haven't done that, that needs to be your first investment. Believe in Jesus. Secondly, invest in getting to know him more. This is where I think a lot of people's lives begin to betray them about what is really important. I mean, just compare your DVD collection with your library of Christian books or your music download or CDs with your Christian library. What do you see there? What do you see there? We need to invest time in a good study Bible to begin with. And then start buying good books that are going to help us study the Bible and grow in the Lord and Bible software and learn how to use them. Of course, this would require some sacrifice because you may have to go to bed earlier instead of watching TV so you can get up early and spend time with the Lord. You may have to not do something fun on Saturday so you can study. You may have to sacrifice a little bit, but do it a little at a time. Invest in getting to know Jesus. You know, two mocha lattes would get you a good book. One movie would get you a good book. You know, for the price of a flat panel TV, you could get a pretty decent library. For the price of a new car, (laughs) you could get a library bigger than mine. And I've got a pretty big one. And a desk and a computer. And even hire a secretary for a while. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17, three, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Think about that. What is eternal life? Knowing Jesus. So we need to invest in this life and knowing Jesus. That is a spiritual investment. Don't just wait until you get to heaven. and Say, who are you? Well, I'm the guy who died for you. Oh, so what was your name again? So you don't want to be that. You want to know Jesus? He is the Savior, the Lord, the Judge, the Redeemer, and God. That's why Jesus said in Matthew six thirty three. Right after he talked about how the Gentiles they eagerly seek food, drink, and clothing, he says, "Seek first the kingdom and His righteousness, and all those things will be added to you." You invest in eternity now; you will reap eternal dividends. I mean, think about the disciples, how they left their homes and left their livelihoods and left their boats and nets on the shore. I mean, imagine just walking away. I mean, think of all the things you have now. You go outside here this morning and, you know, there's Jesus and says, come follow me. And you go, well, what about my car? Come follow me. What about my house? What about my job? What about what about this? I've got, you know, bills to pay. And, I, you know, I've got things. So he's got... Come with me. Imagine just walking away. From all of it. To follow Jesus. In Luke 18. Verses 28-30. through 30, Peter speaking for all of the disciples. Says. Behold we have left our homes. And followed you. And Jesus said to them. Truly I say to you. There is no one who has left house. Or wife. Or brothers. Or parents. Or children. For the sake of the kingdom of God. Who will not receive many times as much. At this time and in the age to come eternal life you sacrifice for god in this life he's going to bless you some way in this life at this time and also for an eternity as you receive the gift of eternal life i mean just look at your checkbook look at your checkbook look at your bank statement look at your taxes Are you investing in eternity or not? Are you using your house to practice hospitality? Are you using your stuff to be a blessing to others? Or is it all about you building your own little empire and your own account and trying to get your first million or tenth million or whatever so you can leave more behind when you die? Look at verse 12. And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, did you stop there? This, this, I think, is the one mental thing you've got to get fixed into your mind. The little phrase, that which is another's. Who is the other? God. He owns it all. God is the one who has given you everything and you are the steward the manager, the caretaker of God's stuff. Do you remember when David was fleeing from Saul? And, you know, at this time Saul was king and Saul was persecuted. You remember what happened? How he was running around and, and, you know, he's got his band of kind of expert SWAT team, you know, desert Navy SEAL warriors with him. And he goes up to Nabal whose name is fool in Hebrew. And he goes up to Nabal and says, hey, listen, you know, um, and and he asked nightly, I mean, he could just went in there and taken it, but he went to Nabal and said, listen, I'm, um, you know, we're kind of on the run here. I wouldn't mind, you know, a little bit of food for my men. Now, David was the anointed of God at this point. And do you remember what Nabal said to David's request? First Samuel twenty five eleven. just listen to this. Nabal says, shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? Just think about that. What's his problem? He doesn't realize he's just a what? A steward. A manager. He thinks it's all his. And this is the problem with America. We think that whatever is in our possession is ours. Is ours. Is ours. This is mine. You know, we've got, I mean, my problem. In verse 38, it says, 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal so that he died. And surely this is exactly what Jesus must have been meditating on when he crafted the parable of the rich fool. Or in Hebrew would be the rich Nabal. I mean, what happens when the rich fool... Begins to reason to himself. We read this in Luke 12, 17 through 19. What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. I mean, what was his problem? He thought it was all. His, he didn't remember that he was just a manager of God's stuff. And just like Nabal, what happened in Luke chapter 20, 20 and 21 or 12 verses 20 and 21. But God said to him, you fool, you Nabal, this very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So it is with a man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Notice God even owns our life. That li- that that night, his life was required from him. I mean, think about it. Everything you have, you've got to get this fixed your mind. Everything you have is given to you. And so how are you going to take care of it? God Almighty gave you everything you have. So how are you dealing with this stuff? When I was in Idaho, I had this friend who was a very successful generous businessman and he liked to garden and so since i had my 19 you know 67 ford pickup truck he would come over in the spring and he'd take a week of vacation because he'd like to get his yard set up and he'd throw me the keys to his lexus which was worth as much as my entire house and then he'd take my truck for a week, and I'd have to drive his Lexus. <laughs> and I tried not to fall in love with the car, but it was really nice. I used to like driving down the road because I, could, I couldn't hear the engine. I could only hear the, the tires kind of just, it felt like it was coasting everywhere. It was wonderful. And the stereo system was really good. It had a lot of gadgets in there, too. But how do you think I dealt with his car? I mean, you think I just like, you know... Treat a man. I was so scared to hurt that thing, and uh, go in a parking lot and park way back in the corner and walk. You know, the only we park two spots, maybe four. You know, just stay away from the car. It's worth a lot of money. And so, why was I that way? Well, because the car was somebody else's and it was valuable. Well, that's what we need to remember. It's God's stuff. You're wearing God's clothes. And you're thinking, well, I didn't know God was that small. Those are his clothes. (laughs) He doesn't wear them. But he owns them and lets you wear them. And they're God's shoes. And you drive God's car and you live in God's house or God's apartment. You sleep in God's bed. Everything you have is God's. You breathe God's air. You live because of God's life within you everything you have is God's in first chronicles 29:14 David says but who am i and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this for all things come from you and from your hand we have given you David says listen lord i mean you gave us everything we have and granted we're going to give an offering now we're, we're You know, we're giving back to you, but it's all yours anyway. So we're just shuffling around your stuff for you. John the Baptist said in John 3, 27, a man can receive nothing unless it has been granted to him from heaven. You can't get anything unless it's given to you from heaven. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? Everything you have, you've received So how could you be stingy? How could you be hoarding? How could you be covetous since it's all God's stuff and you're just a manager? James tells us in James 1 17, every good thing and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. Everything is God's. And so as we're dealing with God's stuff, what does God want us to do? He wants us to have an eternal perspective with his stuff that he's given us. Like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians four eighteen, why we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, but the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's why the scriptures tell us to keep our eyes fixed on the things above, to see Jesus on the throne, to see the angels, to see the saints, to see eternity, to look ahead. That makes us go, you know what, I'm using this for that. I'm going to forego some of the earthly pleasures. I'm going to forego some of the things I can do with that so I can invest in eternity and be rich towards God. Look at verse 12. Jesus again says, and if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another, who will give you that which is your own? And the implied answer is what? No one. Especially God. I mean, just try this. Go into a bank, some bank you've never banked in. Just walk in and say, you know, I'd like a million dollars. Oh, really? So, uh, what kind of collateral do you have for the loan oh i I don't want a loan. I just want the money <laughs> And what do you think they're going to say? they're going to say to you the same thing God's going to say to you if you don't invest in eternity, show up in heaven and say, "Hey, I want my rewards." He's going to go, ha, ha, ha. what rewards?" You want lots of heavenly riches? Invest now for eternity. Third principle, be faithful to God alone as your master. Look at verse 13. He says, no one can serve two masters for either you will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Um, For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will devote one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now the whole point here is this. The Pharisees are lovers of money and they're listening in we know this from verse 14 and they had come to the conclusion that anybody who has money has money because God has given it so they had that part right. So in their mind, if I have wealth, if I have a lot of wealth, I have a lot of blessing from God. Therefore, I know God is pleased with me the more money I have. So they then began to strive after money to accumulate wealth, to do everything they could to get as much riches as they could so that they then could feel justified that God was blessing them and liked them and was in favor with them because they had a lot of money. But Jesus then pops their balloon when he says, Oh, you can only have one master. They thought they could serve God and money simultaneously and be equally devoted to each. Or maybe even money a little bit more as long as they were devoted to God. God. And when Jesus speaks of hating and despising, he is talking about not giving preference to someone or something. We've talked about this before, like in Romans 9, where, where Paul says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Remember that? And you kind of read that and go, what does that mean? That sounds bad. Well, what happened? Well, God made a covenant with Jacob, and did he make one with Esau? No. But does that mean, you know, he just cast Esau into hell right away? No. Esau was blessed. Esau became a nation, Esau prospered, but because he made the most important covenant with Jacob and didn't make it with Esau, he showed preference to Jacob and not Esau. Therefore, he loved Jacob in that way and hated or did not show preference to Esau in the other. We see saw the same thing in Luke 14, 26, where Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be thy disciple. We go, well, how did that work? Remember? Because God commands us to honor our parents and to love them and to love our wife and husbands and children and brothers and sisters. So how could Jesus said you need to hate them and you need to love them? I mean, what's going on there? preference i never want you to put anybody before me you put me first and in that way you love me and in comparison hate them you are so committed to doing what i want and having me be king over your life that comparison there's hatred that's what he's talking about he's not saying don't love any other person but me so this is what happened when he talks about despising and hating. He's talking about you 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 can only have one master. Only one person can dominate your life. And who's it going to be? Is it going to be your money, you, things, or me? That's it. You can only have one. Which one is going to have preference in your life? Now, I know some of you have an intellectual understanding of what I'm saying. I know you're all saying, man, this is convicting. And I hear you loud and clear. But some of you don't have a heart that wants to act upon it. You just can't break away. And you need to kind of come to an Elijah crossroads where he said to the rebellious people of Israel, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord be God, serve him. If Baal be God, then serve him. And some of you just need to get to that place and say, who's going to be my Lord? Who's going to be my God? Who am I going to serve with my stuff? That's not even my stuff. It's God's. J.C. Rowell, speaking of our text, says, quote, the truth the Lord propounds here seems at first sight to be obvious that there is nothing to discuss. And yet thousands of people are constantly trying to do the things which Christ says are impossible. They try to make friends of the world and be friends of God at the same time. Their consciences are enlightened to the extent that they want to have some religion, but their affections are chained down to earthly things so that they never show that they are truly Christians. This results in their living in a state of unhappiness. They have too much religion to be happy with this world, and they have too much of the world in their hearts to be happy with their religion. In short... They waste their time trying to do what cannot be done. They are striving to serve God and money. I'm sure some of you are very faithful and are doing what's right and a rich coach God and God bless you and may he continue to bless you more as you seek to honor him. But the rest of you, money makes a terrible master and it makes an abominable God. You're never going to find the joy that God wants you to have in this life, the peace you're going to have in this life, and certainly the rewards that he wants to give you in eternity. If you don't, take the fingers of money which have you by the throat and get them off and start living with your money and your possessions and your time and your resources for the glory of God. Some of you need to go home and spend time with the Lord and look at your life, look how you're living, look at how you're spending, and ask yourself, over the last five years, what have I done for the glory of God? What have I invested in eternity? What am I doing for eternity? Jesus wants you to know that if you are faithful in the use of earthly riches, you are faithful in spiritual eternal things as well. He wants you to know that if you are unfaithful in the use of earthly riches, you will forfeit your heavenly rewards. He wants you to know that if you are unrighteous in the use of God's things, don't expect to receive any things from God in heaven. He wants you to know that if you are deluded into thinking you can serve God and money in this life, the reality is you can't. And he wants you to know that if money is your God, then you're an idolater and God isn't your God. Calvary Bible Church, we need to look at ourselves and quit letting the world outstrip us in shrewdness and begin to invest where we profess is a place of eternal dividends rather than just in this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you because it is convicting It causes us to search our hearts. And, Father, if there was ever a country that needed it, it's America. I pray, Father, that as we go from here, our hearts would be convicted. And, Father, this week we would spend time looking at our life, our lifestyle, our checkbooks, our giving We'd ask ourselves, are we being rich towards God or not? Is there any ways we can cut back? Any ways we can invest more? Any ways we can use our things for your glory and honor and praise? Father, help us to do that. Help us to be servants. Help us to win friends with our unrighteous mammon. So that when we die, we are received by a great multitude because of what you have done through our faithful stewardship. Father, may this be true for your glory and our blessing. We pray in Christ's name, amen.